And welcome to another episode of the Unbound Theatre podcast, Tell Great Stories. My name is Erica Sanderson, and today we are going to be talking about something that's very, very close to my heart, or rather I should say a character that is very, very dear to my heart. Professor Crenomier, who was created back in 2019 uh, by Dario and Gareth. And Dario, tell us about the professor, how she first came into being. Well, yeah, she was created, as you say, for, for Lost in Time, uh, which was a a project we worked on for Aylesbury Town Council. And the way that came about, it was a, a official commission. Uh, we have to thank Ruth Mayhew from the Town Council for that. Ruth's uh, been a fantastic supporter and, and friend of Queen's Park and Unbound as of Aylesbury Town Council themselves. Um, and we've been working with Ruth for a while now. We started off at events that she organises for the council. She's an events officer. So if you live in Aylesbury, you're bound to have heard of the Soapbox Derby or Aylesbury on Sea, Park Life Weekend, Festive Family Fun, Carol Fest. Those are the events that Ruth and her team work on. And uh, we'd been there with Queen's Park for about a year or so running free craft activities. And we'd, we'd started to explore ways of getting Unbound involved as a, as a project. So we'd gotten a commission to perform, I think the first thing was Wind in the Willows, uh, which was part of Aylesbury on Sea in 2018, so the year before we did Lost in Time. And that had gone down very well. Uh, and we'd been talking over ideas with Ruth about what we might be able to do in 2019. And that's those are the projects that became... Choose Tales, Treasure Island, and Captain Christmas, which we performed at different events throughout the year. And at the end of 2018, I think it was probably about the time Panto was up and running, I seem to recall. Ruth approached us about working on uh, an interactive project, which she wanted about Aylesbury's history. And um, the council had commissioned walking plays before, which uh, took place in the historic part of the town centre, uh, around about St Mary's Church and the, the old part of town, as it's called. And uh, they were sort of essentially murder mysteries and mystery plays, which uh, Erica and Gareth are both in at various points. And uh, Ruth was keen to redevelop the project, and, and rather than having them something that was wholly fictional, she wanted something that was rooted very specifically in uh, historical events and characters that were part of Ellsbury's heritage. In other words, I suppose she wanted them to be more educational. And because we'd, you know, we'd had a very positive working relationship with Ruth and she liked what we were doing, she asked us if we would take it on. And it took a while to figure out the format of it because we realised it was effectively a reboot of a, a previous project and we didn't want to just carry on something that had been happening. We wanted to make it feel completely new and for audience as well, we, we wanted them to think, oh, this is something different. So we, we discussed ways in which we could differentiate it and, and the key ideas were we wanted to make it more light-hearted, whereas they'd been slightly more sort of Victoriana and um, murder mysteries and mystery plays. So we wanted to say it was light-hearted and kind of an adventure, really, as opposed to a mystery. And the big difference was to move it indoors rather than go back to the same route that had been used previously. And it's it's not a massive leap of logic. I think we've spoken before on the podcast about necessity being the mother of invention. It's not a massive leap to think... We need a venue that's linked with history, that's got plenty of space to walk around because the council didn't want it to become a, a sit-down play. They wanted to keep that element of walking and moving around from space to space. So you need a historical setting where you can move around and it, it doesn't take a genius to think, well, what about the museum? And 
the other deciding factor which sort of led to the professor and the project in general was that we were sort of aware that in a in a way this was going to be possibly a last roll of of the die for the walking plays uh, the council wanted to do something different they wanted to just reinvent it as something educational and informative and if it worked then great we'd hopefully do more and that is that is the plan but if it didn't then you know no hard feelings at least we tried so taking it as possibly as a, a bit of a one-shot deal we might only get one chance of doing this i thought well rather than linking it to one particular bit of Ellsworth's history or one particular event or character let's just cover as much as possible and fill it with as many facts because the the remit and i think this was even in the wording of the the booking form we got was that we had to do something that led the audience to walk away saying i never knew that before so if you've got a show you're in a museum you're moving around and you want to do something that covers lots of different time periods and lots of different historical stories then it again not a great leap of thinking to come up with a story that's going to be around a time traveller and that's pretty much where the professor came from almost immediately was she was there in my head and that's what I went back to Ruth with and we pitched as the as the project it was a, a time traveller who's lost their time machine and we took it from there really and I have got one last thing on the sort of the genesis I've done something hitherto unheard of in these podcasts I've done some research and I have somewhere on, on your own work because <laughs> I have as is known, I have the, one of the world's worst short-term memories. So I've gone and looked up my notes on... And I read it out because there's... You, Erica, you'll like this. And these were the very first notes we had before we kind of had it commissioned and before we uh, started work on a story and, and it had all been signed off. And it says, ATC, as we time cancel, history play, May 2019. Uh, an immense, uh, immersive... Well, immense. Immersive, informative theatre show touring Bucks County Museum. And then there's a synopsis and it says, Professor Astrid Cronier has lost her time machine. So she had a different name, but I clearly didn't have much faith in it because I've written Cronomier above that in the question mark. So didn't have much confidence in that being a name. Uh, so Professor Astrid Cronier has lost her time machine. Specifically, someone's stolen it. As a result, ghosts of the past walk the corridors of the present. Professor Cronier needs your help to follow a trail of clues that will reunite her with a time ship. Are you ready for the challenge? And then there's a list of sort of characters to include, some which we did include, like John Hamden and Civil War Soldiers, some which we didn't. And then at the bottom of the page, it says, and I'd already changed the name by now, Erica as Chronomier, question mark, a la H.G. Wells. <laughs> so, um, so that's how she came to be, really. And we we went away, the commission got taken up, the council were happy with it, the museum agreed to do it. And, uh, and then we started and it was a quick turnaround as well. I think all of that would have been in December and early January into January 2019 and then we performed it in May. Because I remember I got an email from you just sort of outlining the project and you described this rather eccentric character, uh, larger than life time traveller and just said, fancy playing her? And it was like, yes, please. And it, it all just kind of kicked off from there. Um, so you and uh, Gareth ended up by producing the first script together that was uh, lost in time so yes. how did how did that all come together what was the working relationship between the pair of you like like um who comes up with the jokes and who comes up with the history bits or is it not like that at all no i mean i'd gone on a, a recce of the museum with ruth again must have been some point in january 2019 just to remind myself of uh, ourselves really of, of what the different spaces were and and a rough idea of the route. The, the great thing about the museum is it's a bit of a rabbit warren, so you can double back on yourself. And Ruth was very keen about 
the professor as a character always kind of running, coming and going, disappearing out of different rooms. So I'd had a bit of a heads up on the museum and what different areas there were. And then I recall, I think, February, Gareth, we went, the two of us then went on a Saturday morning round the museum to then start piecing it together. Yeah, I remember sort of when, yeah, you first sort of brought me into the, the project. And the thing about necessity being the mother of invention, I think, was really really key to the lost in time um sort of writing process because i remember one of the first things you sort of said was yeah there's this this list of things it's got to be you know it's got to be educational it's got to be interactive it's got to involve the museum you know directly in what's happening and when you sort of first hear that it sounded like oh wow there's this this big list of restrictions on what it can be that's really sort of restricting but the more we looked into it the more it sort of really pushed us down a route of making something really quite interesting and i wonder if we hadn't had that impetus of all of those you know restrictions and pointers whether we'd have come up with something completely different yeah i would because it was written not necessarily specifically about the museum but certainly using its exhibits in certain spaces as a jumping off point yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you what came first like the route or the characters well, the Chronomia was there from the from the the off, and the idea of it it's a it's about a time traveller who's lost her time machine and needs your help to get it back. So I I think before we really went very far into the planning, that was always there as the basic plot, and the notion was you were moving around the museum and you were obviously doing something that was going to help you get the time machine back, either finding bits of it or following clues to take you around. So that concept was always there, and then it was populating it with characters that had a connection with Aylesbury and some of those did come from the museum as we walked around others were I'd read I'd done a little bit of reading on Aylesbury's history so I'd found out from that I think that Queen Victoria had visited so that was let's put her in there uh, we knew before that about the connection with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn uh, there's a civil war John Hamden there's not really a lot of stuff about John Hamden in the museum but he's one of the most famous figures connected with Aylesbury so it was a bit of a mix. It was partly just researched generally about what are the kind of tentpole stories and figures from Aylesbury history that we should include and what are the elements in the museum that we can then connect to. And I think there was a bit about a mammoth because there was an exhibit about that in one of the galleries. And we put in a bit of Ruth's request about the painting, which is called, is it the jury? The jury. I think it was, yeah. I had a really, really big speech to learn about that that filled me with fear thank you for that yes yeah, so that, that was definitely ruth ruth said let's we've got to make sure that's in the play put something in about that so we you gave it. me a monologue about a painting about all of these dignitaries of aylesbury that i had to learn yes yeah, so there's a lot of information about that there's biographies of all the different yeah. people so we set up that i think the professor has met them and has uh has had some sort of encounter with them in the past. Yes, I can't remember whether a part of her costume was made by one of them or something like that. I might have made that up, but I remember that like they all had, you know, professions and stuff. And so I think that they'd all made various bits for her at one point in the in the thing. I seem to recall there was a series of puns, weren't there, about bakers and butchers and there's a bit of back and forth between <laughs> the professor and Astrid, I seem to remember. So yes, it, the the plot was there already and then populating it with figures were mostly just from general research of Aylesbury but some were from the museum and then it was working out which order you met them in in which part of the museum and I remember Gareth and I we went we did a walk around figuring it out where you could go yeah we had almost like a blueprint of the yeah the layout of the museum and then sort of I, I remember sort of drawing little roots on it and kind of going that's where 
that's where they meet this, that's where they meet this. And then we got sort of the the stairwell where they would overhear and we sort of knew that was a great place for someone to overhear something but didn't know at that stage quite what it was going to be. And then obviously when the great train robbers came in as well um, and sort of became as close to an antagonist as you could get, that was when a lot of the sort of structure of the plot, you could now say, okay, we've now got a thread that's going to happen. We know why the professor's looking for for her time machine because i think at first she had lost the the machine and we sort of didn't quite know how she was going to find it what the struggle was going to be but then when the train robbers came in and the idea of them you know using the machine to escape yeah from that we could then sort of start building a real thread of a plot and once you had that basic thread you then could start bringing in okay this happens here this is plot related this is interaction related and sort of build it up from that point. Yes, they the the train robbery was the the element you're right that gave us a bit more of a story to it, because you're moving between each uh, gallery or each room in the museum, and so naturally it's a little bit sketchy in in the sense of there's a little vignette in each one, and you meet someone different, so there's always a historical figure, and we tried to make sure that in each room there was a little bit of a an interactive element whether it was a little quiz about something that we talked about previously in the scene or whether there was a i think we had a joke telling competition to make queen victoria laugh um there was a sing-along with the civil war soldiers with everyone sang green sleeves so we were looking for these ways of getting the audience to really interact but yeah that the the train robbers gave us a bit of momentum towards the end that they'd stolen some of the crystals that every every room you went to you had to try and find a crystal um helped i think it was they all were part of a scanner that the professor would then be able to use to find where the time machine had gone because it had, she'd i think wasn't it that she had left it with a handbrake off or something and it, it had disappeared it, it wasn't yeah. the professor it was it astrid was Ast- well it was, astrid, astrid it was astrid definitely was not the, pro- the was professor astrid. said it astrid was astrid, 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 astrid yes <laughs> <laughs> oh come um, now dear boy as if i would do something like that um and so that was the basic format it wasn't very plot heavy it was very much interaction heavy but it had a good plot at the end so there was a story to resolve um whereas i'm sure we'll talk later about laws of time which is hopefully going to be the sequel when we can get around to uh, being back and doing that is much more plot driven Hmm. um still with the interactive element but what i think was great about laws of uh, sorry of lost in time was the sheer sense of fun that came from it like the the interactions the characters it was all just really rooted in this has got to be fun this has got to be exciting and yeah particularly because you know there was a slight element i think the council wanted to aim it more child friendly as well and the, the sense of sort of just fun adventure that came from it really sort of shone through in that project um and i think that then also becomes a bit of a counterpoint to laws of time where we sort of realized we'd done that that fun adventure one with lots of interaction and lots of you know interesting stuff happening and now we wanted to really dive into the you know the plot and the characters and do something that's a lot more plotty um which i think will be a great yeah great sort of counterpoint to lost in time which was just yeah rooted in fun I mean, especially during the rehearsals as well. They, it's 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 definitely been one of the one of the. I just remember laughing a lot during the rehearsals. Everything from you know how we put it together physically, where we had this massive um, whiteboard with, and it was like something out of some kind of bank robbery. You know, like Ocean <laughs> Eleven or something, where you'd have this massive. 
have this massive diagram with arrows everywhere. And I think even at, at the point the characters were colour coded with who had to run from each room. And we're in the theatre where we've got some boxes to represent doorways and different rooms. It's like, right, OK, let's try and map out where this where everything is. Um, but yeah, I just, I just and even some of the production photographs from that, I, you see me and I'm literally just like giggling my head off in in some of them. Like the thing with, I'll never forget the first time we, we trialled one of the joke props, which was someone smashing a painting over someone's head. Oh, yeah, it was Matt <laughs> as the, I think uh, it was, the Saxon, I think. Got it was the Matt painting. as the mm. Saxon with the painting. And it, I think Hannah just crashed it through and his head just went straight through the paper. And we all just, it was the first time we'd done it. And we all just looked at him. And Matt just had this incredible expression on his face. And we all just burst out laughing. Yeah, it was and, great. Um, uh, Alistair as his Roman soldier making this. Did you make an entrance from one of the lifts? Yes, it was. We, Did the doors of the lift open? Yeah, we um, because Ruth was again very keen about this thing of characters coming and going. So uh, that was where the character of Astrid really came from, because the prof had to be coming and going, running out and running out of one door, and then the next time you see them, they're somewhere else completely. And so you needed one character who was anchoring the audience, so to speak. But we were kind of looking for ways of interesting and funny ways for characters to walk in. So sometimes you walk in, they're already there. But they've got a lift in the museum right next to the gallery where we were doing one scene. And um, we just thought, wouldn't it be really funny if you rang the lift and said, well, let's go upstairs and see if we can find the next crystal or, you know, go and follow the next clue. And then you open it and there's a Roman soldier stood there. And uh, and it connected with the Lembra Horde as one of the exhibitions. And then it's one of those bits of casting where you go, as soon as you need a Roman centurion, no one else can do that but Alistair. He, and he was so perfect as this soldier who was looking <laughs> for his coins and was frustrated that someone had locked them in a giant cabinet. Um, so yes, that was <laughs> yeah. great fun. It was it was kind of, like you say, Gareth, the, the, the tone was much more lighthearted and, and, and silly in a good way. I mean, you know, childlike, not childish. Yeah. It was really fun to have characters popping up i would say it was like a family adventure really yeah Um, yeah. it was was, you get like yeah it was really good fun it was a good ensemble that we got together and i think particularly we just it probably overlapped with anthony and cleopatra which we talked about last time and uh so it was kind of fun to go from something that was high tragedy to something that was a real fun running around comedy but how did you uh erica because obviously i i I roped you in to play the character (laughs) what was your reaction when you got the the script for the first time when I got the script, oh, um, I loved it. I think I think I even emailed you and said that I've got to page two and she's already making me laugh. So I, I felt I felt like an instant warmth to her. And the more I've played her, the more and more I really do take her to my heart. I am incredibly protective of her. And I have loved playing her throughout, you know, Lost in Time and all of the, the audio stuff that we've now done as well. But yeah, when you when you first gave me that, there was just something about her her love of, of, of life and history and her sense of adventure. Um, and that kind of really uh, sort of jeering up the, the audience as well. She was very much like a driving voice, like, right, come on, this way. And, and off we would go like a rocket. I, it's got to be one of the most, it was, it was only like, half an hour show but it's one of the most exhausting ones I've done because I spent so much time running or if I wasn't running then I had to have that energy to kind of burst into a room and then drive the audience on because you know we were walking around the whole building um I'll never forget during the shows that there was there was one bit you, you talk about popping in and out everywhere 
where I had to leave from one door and then literally run out the front door across the courtyard through a garden and pray that a back door to the museum was unlocked and that I could get back into the building to run up two flights of stairs to make a very calm entrance on another floor. And there was also a massive window that I had to try and time it so that people couldn't see me running yes, across said garden. Past it, yeah. <laughs> they were walking past it at almost the same time. So I had to leg it, dash across before they got into that room. And then, yeah, just I, I, my heart was going and I was always, I would always think, you know, did they, did they unlock the door? Did they unlock the door? Because it was still, we still had people in the museum at the time during the rehearsals. And, and I think there was one point where I, I ran up to it and rattled the door and it was like, well, it didn't open. Like, yes, because they were, we overlapped, I think, just as they were closing. They would close at four and our first performance was at four o'clock. So there would be a little crossover. And because they had to get all the general public out before we began, they had to close all the doors and lock them to make sure no one was sort of sneaking back in. And then we were doing a last little run through and we suddenly went, oh no, all the doors are locked. But fortunately, it was all, all the performances <laughs> ran very smoothly. It was fine. It was yeah. fine. It was, of all the shows we've done, the, it's that metaphor of the graceful swan gliding across a, a lake with the legs paddling <laughs> furiously underneath. The backstage of Lost in Time was was a performance in itself because we had to, as soon as the audience were out of one space, we had to go in, clear props. We had a time machine, which um, John North made, this fantastic prop that appeared at the end, but we, we wanted it to appear in a room you'd already been in. So the very first room which I think was called the Hartwell Room. Uh, the one with all the paintings. Yes, and as soon as they'd gone upstairs and were up on the upper level and out of the way and couldn't see anything, we then had to leg it to the van out the front where we'd got the time machine stored, take it out, put it in the room ready because the audience were then going to come down the stairs, walk past the same area. So we had to be really fast with setting it all up. But it was it was great fun and uh, the reaction was, was brilliant from the, the audiences. They really enjoyed it. And there were lots of little bits whereby we would either have to hide around the corner to listen for your cue or something and then either burst in or time it as if you were walking down the corridor as if to meet the rest of the audience coming in the opposite direction. And there'd be lots of like just ducking out of sight going, are they on their way? Are they coming? Can I go? No? Right? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, trying to get all of those timings. And I think there was one with a sword fight that took place across an open doorway. So it was like halfway through a fight that we just kind of, Yes, it was the that was with Matt, wasn't it? It's was the Saxon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um and we're kind of there and we're we're waiting and then someone would someone else would be standing in another part of the building that we could see who would then frantically wave at us and it'd be like then we'd fight and then we'd go past this doorway and then disappear and then somebody else would have to shut a door so that we could disappear to another part of the building and Yeah, yeah. never has a clipboard it been so crazy. needed backstage. <laughs> I had so many notes of where I needed to go before <laughs> between each bit who to cue and who to tell is clear and who to, you know, get into position. Yeah, because I think most people who were in it were, apart from obviously Erica and Hannah, were playing multiple characters or in multiple places. Because even me and John, who were just playing the the robbers, we had to sort of start off in one place. What you thought was us running away from the professor was actually us running round to go and get the time machine. Yeah, help, help set it up. And then sort of, yeah, go, go in, help set it up check that the audience have gone, run over to the stairs, make sure you're ready for them to, you know, accidentally eavesdrop on you. As soon as they've gone, you're running round to the garden. And everyone was doing something like that. Obviously, Erica was doing all the time from one place to another, almost like a magic trick. It was, you would, 
you know, run off in one direction and then appear from somewhere you had no right to be that quickly. But that was the whole <laughs> yes. point, that it had to appear almost magical in this way that you popped up. Yeah, there are some great photos, I, I presume they must be Angela's, of of what was going on backstage, of like Rob just sort of lingering around at the top of a staircase as Henry VIII because he wasn't sure when the audience were coming, he couldn't hear them. So he was just kind of ambling around. And it was, it was so fun because I wasn't following the group of... Uh, the the audience i was just sort of coming and going and getting stuff set up and it was the beautiful chaos of just sort of standing there and then seeing queen victoria running past up a flight of stairs because she had to get dressed it was lara getting changed into anne boleyn (laughs) (laughs) and um people you know (laughs) alistair sort of storming around as his uh roman centurion and legging it because he had to get changed into a cavalier costume upstairs there were quite a lot of strategically placed piles of clothes that the audience never saw where <laughs> actors had gotten changed quickly in a corner and then run out with their next bit it was it was really good fun but yeah to get that timing and that logistics working really well at the same time as keeping it interactive because so much of it was like a quiz or you know, getting an audience involved or a joke telling competition you could never be exactly sure of the timings so it was a bit of a mission to make sure that everyone knew when to sort of release the audience to the next bit. And the other thing that's worth noting, and Erica alluded to with the whiteboard, is we never rehearsed in the space until the day that we did the first performance because we couldn't tally up with the museum. They were closed on Sundays, which is when we rehearsed, um, or occasionally evenings. So the first time a lot of the actors had seen where we were going to be and how it would work was when we were actually there. So I remember rehearsals were were quite fun because we were trying to make the limelight a little bit like the museum we were using stage blocks and and panels and things to try and replicate some of the layouts of the rooms and as you say we had the the whiteboard which had one route for the where the audience would be going through and then separate routes for where Eric had to go at any given time and how Lara would then move from one space to another to get ready for her next scene and where Alistair would go for something that did come across as a, a really just fun you know, not a particularly complex story. It's a really good bit of honest fun. It was such a complex thing, weirdly, and and a lot of cost, a lot of costumes, a lot of different uh, time periods to cover, a lot of different characters. So it was a it was a big old big old project, and um, amazing to think that we yeah we started work on the script end of January, early February, and we were on at the start of May. It was incredible turnaround. And I remember we even had a, a mini fight, well, two really mini fight sequences in there as well. We had sort of the the scuffle between the robbers and the professor at the start, which, although it yeah, wasn't this long, complicated routine, there was a lot that needed to happen. Like the crystal needed to get from the professor to the robbers, be, I think, thrown between the two robbers, and then one kept out of the way while the other one was, was stolen. So that, there was a lot of complexity in that. And again, the sort of the finale as it were was actually a surprisingly you know complex little routine with sort of symmetry going on and people being thrown about and yeah you've then got the audience all surrounded in the sort of open garden space so even that had a sort of although it looked like a a fun little you know vignette actually had a lot of planning going into it we had the garden chase in particular was almost regimented i think in Mm. rehearsals we were standing in the limelight and dario was like right one two three four you come Mm. to there you come to there we all go round (laughs) and it it was it it was like a dance almost we all had to be regimented into this and and there was like a a particular clockwork clockwork 
clockwise pattern that we were all uh, doing or something in order to make sure that the right characters were confronted by the by the other right characters at the same time and yes that was that was that was one of those that was one of those things and then there was the fight with with you over the crystal and i had the sword fight with um with matt as the saxon um yeah there was there was a lot going didn't we on. end up in the car park doing that finale sequence i think we we had no room left in the limelight. We'd filled it, was in the it with them. Um, no, I meant when we were rehearsing. Oh God, yes! Yeah. There was no room in the theatre. We, we were so full yes. of stage blocks and and fake walls that we put up. We had to go into the car park and rehearse. You know, the things that our neighbours have seen over the years <laughs> being rehearsed. <laughs> uh, good bit of advertising. So, what are the what's everyone's sort of standout favourite bit of Lost in Time? Either a character or a, a sequence or a scene. Because my mine's John Hamden, pointy man. Yeah, it was the first joke right from the off. It's in those original notes. Was that he's just always pointing at something, and Andy Faber was was fantastic as Hamden, and it was a great cast. But I do have a soft spot for uh for Hamden and the prof having a little bit of yeah. a a flirt as well. Oh, I I think the the sort of fight sequence in the finale again was uh just sort of doing that was so much fun because it was this. You know, fast-paced, fun thing that you're doing, but at the same time, it's not something you get a a chance to do that often. Is something that is quite choreographed. So it was a good good change as an actor to do something like that as well. Lara striding out onto the lawn as Queen Victoria, oh, yes. and then flicking her fan oh, like some yeah. kind of ninja. There's that photo and, online. And then she just kind of, I kind of... Yeah, she looks so badass. Yes, yes, She's got yes. the fan yeah. out like a weapon. <laughs> she just looks amazing. Yeah. Exactly. And I can't remember what her line was or something. It was possibly something like, "We are." It might even have been the immortal. We are not amused. Um, but yeah, she just kind of came. Every all of the other characters that the professor has met comes running out to help her, and um, the the robbers are there. And I just remember, yeah, Lara kind of coming out and flicking this fan looking like a, a some kind of yeah kick-ass yeah. ninja and then she delivers this line and then this just this wicked little glint in the corner of her eye that was wonderful and um yes the flirting with john hamden there might have been a little bit more than the original script intended with that as as andy and i um, <laughs> worked on those scenes and we kind of we kind of kind of developed a little bit of a relationship uh for those characters um with that and yeah we, we just decided to flirt outrageously with each other at any opportunity we got really on those because the the professor's the fact that she is reduced to a, a kind of girlish giggle every time he points at something <laughs> is just <laughs> fantastic and the fact that andy kind of turned john hamden who's a, a, an important figure and stately individual into this rather sort of uh, he was a bit a of a rake. Urbane, rather rakish, you know, flirt. I think it was, it was uh, really, I, I didn't get to see that scene in the performance because that's when we were setting up the time machine, but I, I really enjoyed rehearsing that one. And of course, the relationship between, yeah, the professor and John Hamden blooms further in the yet-to-be-performed Laws of Time yes. that is uh, coming up as soon as we are physically able to do so. Yes, it was... I said earlier, we thought it was a maybe a one-shot deal doing Lost in Time, so we poured as many historical figures as we could into it. But it was a huge success, if we say so ourselves. The feedback was phenomenal. I remember Ruth giving us a, a bit of paper where we used to sit in the town council chamber between performances uh, and, and where we got ready. It was our dressing room. And she gave us this printout of all the comments they'd received from the feedback survey or on Facebook about the play, and it was incredible. And 
so when we we wrapped up we had a great time we were really pleased with it and it uh it was deemed to have really gone well as a success and ruth then started talking about shall we do another one and uh which we said yes absolutely and the the hunt was on really for where do you go next because you don't want to go back to the same venue you've, once you've done it you've done it you want to move on and I remember very early on in Lost in Time, Ruth and I were talking about historical venues and where we might go, and both of us thought the courthouse in Aylesbury Market Square would be an incredible place to go and perform. What a what an amazing space to put on a play. But at the time, it I think because the turnaround was so fast, there was no way we could get in there, and the museum was a much better bet for kicking the whole thing off. But we then revisited it and said, well, can we do it? And Ruth went away and had all the conversations and worked out to talk to and and arranged it and then got us got us the venue and uh and we started work and it, it is sadly it's one of the projects that's had to go on hold for a fair old while whilst covid is ongoing but uh, there's a lot of goodwill on all sides to to revive it but it as we said it's more of a it's a bit more of a mystery isn't it it's a bit more of a character piece we don't want to give too much away because uh obviously it's, mm. it's still incoming but yes john hamden makes another appearance uh as a little cameo and we do discover that um They've kept in touch. <laughs> <laughs> so, what can we what can we sort of tease people with about l- laws of time, Erica? What's uh, what are you looking forward to when we do when we do get around to uh, performing it? Oh, I think I think you might end up by seeing a little bit of a different side of the professor um, with with some of the characters that she she gets to meet. Um, she's she's definitely got her fun side, but there's always there's a you know, there's a there's a there's a lot of anger as well that brims under the surface, and also I think her own past catches up with her as well a little bit. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, really. <laughs> yeah, and I think the the setting for it, it being in the yeah the courthouse building essentially, um, I think that lends itself to so many interesting things happening and so many potentials for yeah for plot points to revolve around that as well that. It's just a brilliant location, and then the things you can do with it really, you know, are going to make it quite a special story, really. Yes, if I can say that without giving too much away. Yes, and and still we are on our, our educational and in, informative remit because we've got lots of uh, real life cases that were either heard or sentenced at Aylesbury Crown Court. Um, so that's quite exciting. That's been quite interesting research, also quite grim, quite scary research, but. Uh, looking forward to telling people including some very funny ones it doesn't sound like it would be funny but there's some uh rather bizarre crimes that have been heard over the years in aylesbury crown court which uh, we can't wait for people to find out about including one about a pie that's all i'll say yes. <laughs> yeah it's definitely um still got a real sense of fun and a lot of you know funny great you know fun moments in the script um but it's definitely more on the darker heavier darker. side this one yeah. i think yeah it's it's still got that adventure element there's there's a story but it is more of a mystery i think isn't it there's there's more of a plot to unravel. it's a mystery thriller isn't it and equally uh, you get to see a part of aylesbury you probably don't get to see any other time of the year so uh yes fingers crossed once covid is passed and we can get back we will we will be uh bringing that to you um but in the meantime obviously the professor has had quite the history uh through lockdowns and yeah with the audios which was uh 
uh, I say unexpected, and I because that's I how them. that's how it started. Yes. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how it started because um, laws of time was uh, postponed, mm. um, lockdown happened, and wait, wait, how did it, how did it switch to audio? With, did you just kind of think about that's what I want to do? I've got an idea to write it. Or? It was an odd one. It um, it wasn't a conscious. Some of the projects we did were we need some content. What can we do? So the sonnets were our immediate response. Doing a sonnet a day was we need content. We want to do it quickly. What can we get going? But the Chronomia, the first book, it was only, you know, envisaged as a one-off, really, to begin with, the Tudor Assassin, was, it's one of those bits of writing or one of those ideas that's sort of in your head and won't leave you alone. And it wasn't a plan for a specific book or a specific project. It was just the description that's in the prologue. That whole sequence, the image of a row of houses in Victorian London, and one of them is a bit more bohemian with a you know scruffy front door and strange plants growing in the window boxes and there's lights flashing through the windows because something's going on inside it was one of those bits of writing sometimes it's dialogue sometimes it's a character sometimes it's an image that don't quite won't leave you alone in a sense you just have to sit down and write them so i didn't write it as specifically let's do a prologue and audio because just i need to write that it's it's clearly there and it needs to be written and then it kept going and it was it was really fun, particularly the first few chapters of that first book. They don't, uh, they're quite freestanding in a sense. They're what's happening with the professor, where's she going? And the plot kicks in once she arrives in Tudor, England. And it was a bit of a leap into the unknown, really, because I hadn't, I hadn't written prose for over 10 years, I think, since uni. But it was a bit of an experiment just to see, well, you know, the, there seems to be something in my head that wants to leak out onto the page. <laughs> and um, eventually thought, well, actually, no, this is a, I think this is an audiobook and then I got in touch with you and did I send you it originally just a bit of it or was it I can't remember now I think I think you did send me sent me bits of it yeah and, probably the um, prologue I think yeah and I think didn't I record you the prologue and send it back to you just kind of say well this is how I would do it yes do you want to carry on and then we then I kind of carried on because it must be uh I'll be honest when we were doing Tudor Assassin the exactly what happened in the plot didn't uh, didn't occur to me until as we were going it was very much one of those you realize what the story's about the more you write it whereas I think all of the ones we've done subsequently the the, the other series have been planned out they've had a story arc yeah sort of plot yeah. breakdown but even even to the point where um you know that because I, I remember saying to you uh, when I first got one of the early chapters one of the first characters that the professor meets when she goes back to Tudor London is that there was a throwaway line about a thief and then it took a couple more chapters and this what was originally because i remember you saying this was, was originally intended to be just just a a, a, a cut purse a minor character actually grew into a very prominent major player um and again so so the, the character of, of of astrid grew from this um small character that you that you'd had to start with and i remember you saying astrid wasn't meant to be in this one and no now she I, is. Um, uh, we do that because we don't really go into backstory in lost in time but i think there's possibly a hint in lost in time that she was from the same time as the professor um we'd always been quite specific that the the professor is an inventor she's not um she's not superhuman or an alien she is a, a human who invented a time machine and went off to explore and i think the inference was that Astra was possibly from the same time and had come along with that so when I started writing Tudor Assassin yeah there was no no plan that Astra would be in it from the beginning and I always knew in my head the professor invented time machine went off to explore on her own 
initially and I thought that it would be about her and then it just seemed right to put her in but I think it's a very different character actually I think the professor's professor is quite different from Lost in Time to the audiobooks um she's certainly got a lot more depth yes. than we've gone back in her history Astrid I have to say I kind of I see and hear a very different character to to Lost in Time because she's a lot more in Lost in Time she's got that slightly pantoey enthusiasm of come on boys and girls we're off on an adventure she's she's that character she's there to kind of g up the audience whereas in the audiobooks i she's a bit more it's a bit more sarcastic and she's a bit more feisty and uh a bit more rough and tough i think uh particularly uh i think we can it'll have been announced by the time this comes out but in the fourth series the fourth the fourth story that's on the way she uh she changes a lot and i yeah it wasn't the plan to put her in there but i just think she's quite a different character i think if you'd seen lost in time and heard the audiobook she'd go you'd think that she's uh she's developed quite a lot but uh yeah that was one of the unexpected things and um i mean when i started writing i don't think i don't think i knew kristen marlowe was going to be in it i didn't really there wasn't a plot really until she arrived and you thought well now there's got to be a plot it's just kind of fun the best bits of writing the professor are those those scenes or those chapters where she's on her own going around and exploring and you're inside her head rather than her conveying ideas through astrid or another character but since then, there have been lots, of, and and as um, the, the the rest of the story arcs have sort of been planned out, there are lots of different threads that connect the plays and all of the the audio adventures as well. There are threads around them. Like for example, there's a throwaway line that Astrid had in um, Lost in Time when she talks about uh, William Shakespeare, and again she refers to the professor flirting with with Shakespeare and the fact that the dark lady of the sonnets is referring to the professor and it the professor meets the uh william shakespeare in the tudor assassin and oh, i still remember that scene there's a wonderful scene where she just literally giggles at him and can't talk to him when she first meets him she goes you're william shakespeare yes <laughs> and just kind yeah. of descends into this girliness just like with john hamden and uh in the one that i'm working on at the moment there is another very very throwaway reference to William Shakespeare when I read that script I think I I, I laughed and I I think I messaged you going this is getting a bit cheeky isn't it yes and I you uh... very innocently went back and went mm, yes <laughs> the offstage flirtations yes. carrying on uh, there was an idea maybe that she'd go back and meet him again in maybe one of the little short stories we've done uh, like the home for Christmas and then when I wrote that one there's a, a scene in the upcoming fourth story where she references him again I thought actually it's really what a great running gag is that you never you never see anything you never see the meat again but you just get these references to what on earth she's been up to <laughs> that she occasionally sneaks back to go and have a have a weekend with will um so it, i think it's it's all the more funny for being un unexplored but reference the fact that she's uh clearly got a bit of a connection with him <laughs> i love it i find i found it hilarious it's, it's wonderful it's wonderful and i can and again i can see these like these little threads and and even the fact that um the the even the the prologue that you wrote for the tudor assassin in some ways becomes connected to again can't really say very much no, no. laws of time as well yes there is a there is a mm -hmm. plot brewing i mean the if anyone's been listening to the chronicles from the beginning has listened to all three of them in the fourth one coming um there's a there's a plot that's unfolding there's a kind of an ongoing story arc which does link with uh, laws of time whether it links back in the same way I, I think we'll probably reuse a lot of the same 
the characters and the situations but it might be framed slightly differently because the the plays and the audiobooks i think exist in a slightly different world to one another um it's almost like we've got our own multiverse we have it? yeah you've got i think the the chronicles of Resconomia as the audio series is to me that's her life story and that's those are uh not say one's definitive or not but that's sort of the the core of it i think weirdly although it came afterwards and the plays are sort of wonderful adaptations taking bits from the mythology that's been building up that will then present them to an audience in a, in a more i say interactive way and a, a more participatory way so they're they're different i think in tone and their 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 style is a little different so they exist slightly differently but there's always going to be crossover so Yes, I think at some point some plot elements from this this mystery that's unfolding in uh, with Laws of Time will find its way into the audio series as well. There's a there's a tale being told that we're heading towards. Um, with series four, you find out a little bit more what's going on, and then uh, there will be further stories with uh, there's a big finish coming up. I mean, for for me personally, because I because Laws of Time was obviously written and created by by the the pair of you, and I I had my script at the time and i i'd read it and the story that was in laws of time um i would definitely say that it was there were certain lines in that script that have essentially informed what has become the kernel of the professor if i'm perfectly honest and there there was there was there's a scene there's a scene and, and there are some lines within that script that i then took on board and it was like right okay so this is who the professor is and it's that version that i have essentially grown if you like with the audiobooks does that make sense yeah it's 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 such a strange um genesis isn't it that it's it is she started out a, as yes, these, these two two scripts one still to be uh staged and completed um as you say the script exists it's there and we were i think we were weeks away from starting rehearsals actually before uh before lockdown came in and then it's spun off into this uh this audio series which is very clearly influenced particularly from laws of time uh, in terms of setting up her as her character and her biography and although some of the details are a bit different i think and it, i say i i think it is a slightly different version in a way the audios to the stage versions yeah. there's absolutely that through line you wouldn't have the audiobooks if it wasn't for the for the two plays um but it's lovely that the, the audio version has kind of blossomed in its own way and has come up with its own mythology now and uh, and that's developing all the time uh, but certainly that I think the hope is from all of us that we'll still get to do the stories uh, as plays as well not necessarily the same stories I think there'll always be a slightly different tone to the to the performances because there's that interactive element but uh, yeah what a it's very unexpected but it's become a, a sort of staple of Unbound hasn't it really yeah and it's interesting what you're saying about the, the two different sort of portrayals is um, I do find that when I'm thinking about stage professor as opposed to audio professor there is there is a bit of a dis distinction be between them um and it's almost as as you said with the character of astrid there is almost a lot of more pantomime where the, you know the professor is talking directly to a modern audience and again trying to guide them through these these locations that we get to go and see and you know cracking jokes even going back to, to lost in time i think one of my favorite jokes was something about i made an annika rice gag which uh, parents of a certain age oh, got yes. and tittered and all the kids were like staring at me going, what the hell are you going on about? <laughs> but yeah, I was, always, I was always pleased when my Annika Rice uh, treasure hunt gag, showing my age there, um, got, got a couple of 
you know, knowing smiles, groans or titters from uh, older members of the audience on that one. So, yeah, there, there is a the very definite, uh, there's the, there's a difference between how I would portray both the characters, but the, the essence of them is, the essence of her is still very much there in both. Because she has popped up elsewhere, hasn't she, Prof? She, we revived her for the fifth anniversary show. There's a little reprise of something from uh, from Lost in Time. And uh, she did. We can say this now because it's out there. The spoilers have been uh, have been negated. It's uh, she pops up in the Inspector Murder Christmas special. Oh, that was lovely to do. That was As so the lovely of Christmas to yet do. to come. Was uh, again not something I think we ever expected yes. to happen, but it just seemed right at the time. And uh, I remember recording that because we had you and Alistair in the same recording studio doing that scene. And it is a bit like two bits of my brain having a conversation. <laughs> but I just and I remember sitting directly opposite Alistair in the booths and um, we, we it was right at the end of the scenes. And, and he looks over at me and he goes, Merry Christmas, Professor <laughs> Cronomier. And I looked back at him and I went, Merry Christmas, Inspector Murder. And the pair of us, we just kind of caught each other's eye and just had like this little, oh, it was a lovely, such a lovely smile. There was genuine warmth there. And it was, and the feel in the, in the recording studio, everyone else went, oh. And it was, it was lovely. It was lovely to be able to play that. It was, it was a little, it's like a little Christmas present, isn't it? And it's, it's very fitting because between the professor and the inspector, those two characters have been at the heart of quite a lot of what we've been doing through the first lockdown and then when we got back together and we were able to be in a studio together and then uh since we've gone back into lockdown so uh very fitting and uh yeah night especially for you and Alistair who are so synonymous that we'd never have anyone else playing those parts they're so attached to the two of you it was a, a nice way to end the year so looking to the future yes Gareth and Dario what other adventures is uh is the professor likely to go on well, so, what other adventures or thoughts have you got planned? Well, obviously, as you said, laws in time. We want to uh, make sure we can remount that and then pick up where we left off. Hopefully, once uh, restrictions allow. And I'm sure the audio adventures will carry on in some way. I think that's a a nice thing to just sort of have as part of the ongoing program, even when lockdowns have lifted. It's a it's a nice thing. But uh, beyond that, there there are some plans and some ideas for what we might do with the prof. We sort of can't say anything yet because it's all up in the air. I mean, it would be lovely to carry on doing the plays for the town council, wouldn't it? Um, it's they're such fun, and uh, the town council are great to work for, and Ruth's been been fantastic. But I don't know where else we'd go. We'd have to. They're always Aylesbury history based, the ones for the count, town council. So we'll have to think of other other venues or other stories. Not too sure. But there's one by the uh, canal, Tides of Time. Tides of Time, yes. <laughs> We've, we've hampered ourselves now with the titles. Aylesbury on Sea, we're going to do Sands of Time. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> very good. In fact, cut so that basic... out of the podcast, we shall do that. <laughs> so basically my entire future theatrical career now is based, is based on how many puns Gareth can get out of of time so that the professor can keep going. Yes, that's how we work. Gareth comes up with a pun of the title. I, I then sort of go and when find a venue and then we sit down together and write it. <laughs> Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably more to be gotten out of the Civil War. I think there's we've got a history with the Civil War. There is the Battle of Aylesbury, which is a uh, we touched upon in in Lost in Time. Uh, the March of things. Time. March of Time. Yes, there Ooh. you go. Do that. I think it would be quite fun to extrapolate some of the stories because Lost in Time was so many different strands together as a 
as a first go maybe to revisit it'd be fun to go back and uh, find out more about Anne Boleyn um, get more use out of the Henry VIII costume yes mm. get our money's worth got a <laughs> The infamous that could be called outfit. ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the next few years sorted, isn't it? <laughs> Nail that. Uh, so yes, and I hope we get to keep doing them. They're um, they are a lot of fun and the interactive ones. And there's there's some thoughts about maybe something that's not necessarily interactive version, more of a, a traditional play. We've got some ideas we like to follow, but I say it's all all up in the air and and uh emails are being written and uh, uh well, projects are being put forward so i i certainly think that the professors i hope will always be around in some shape or form whether it's audio or stage but um it should be my pleasure yeah. to continue playing her definitely could uh set one in a pub time at the bar <laughs> <laughs> 10 p.m last curfew. orders and is there any particular period in history that either of you would like to explore or a, a favourite time or something that without restrictions you would just go, yeah, let's do this. I'd love to do, I'd love to set it on a Viking ship or something like that. I don't know. I think, I mean, we've done a few things with pirates, but pirates are just fun, aren't they? I'd love to do something, something on the high seas would be exciting, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, difficult in Buckinghamshire, we're landlocked, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I have a particular affinity for ancient history, but it doesn't really fit in with sort of, yeah, any locations around Aylesbury. So, uh... No, but I think if, you know, if, we're, if we were moving further afield, if we, if we were putting her anywhere, something, you know, Egyptology is a great playground to play in as writers. Yeah. I mean, I'd love, this is, you know, if, if, you, if, if you could do anything, how brilliant would it be to sort of upscale something like Lost in Time to somewhere like the British Museum? And <gasps> go around somewhere oh. like that. It would be lovely to kind of find other heritage venues and other other spaces that have got a, a story to tell, and you can use the professor to tell that. But yeah, I think pirates or Egyptology. There's plenty of it. I mean, and what's nice, particularly with uh, Laws of Time, was uh, even for us as writers, was discovering stories we didn't know. Any venue, I think, with a story throws up something, and it's uh, it's just really fun to to turn them into stories, the fictionalised stories that you can still learn something from. Uh, it's been great fun to to learn stuff as well as to write it. Well, I hope to continue playing the professor for uh, many more years to come. I shall grow into her infamous white hair. Um, so it remains for me to thank very much Dario and Gareth, not only for joining me this afternoon, but also for creating an absolutely fantastic and memorable character in all of your stories so thank you both very very much and uh, please do listen again next time and bravo for playing her erica <laughs> yes bravo <laughs> yes job well done prof thank you sir